The annual issuance rate with all those annotations kind of looks like it was drawn by a Bitcoiner making fun of Ethereum. But instead, that's from an Ethereum source. Various Ethereum improvement proposals, or EIPs, by developers have changed its monetary policy over time as needed for various reasons. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. This piece today has been a long time in the making. I've been recording this one on and off for, oh God, it feels like a week now. Um, So it's going to be a long one, but get comfortable because it is just a phenomenal piece by none other than returning author Lynn Alden. Uh, amazing newsletter, and she always just has a really clear investor-centered perspective to uh, to the space. So I really, really value her opinion because she doesn't come with any crypto or Bitcoin baggage or anything. Um, and reading, uh, we are reading her thorough breakdown today, an economic analysis of Ethereum. Real quick, uh, a wonderful thank you to our cold storage Bitcoin savings solution with the BitBox O2 hardware wallet. Uh, if you were looking for simple, easy to use, and a highly secure digital vault for your Bitcoins, that is the BitBox. Uh, guyswan.com slash BitBox is where you will find it. And if you want to integrate Bitcoin into your digital banking life, uh, you need banking services. You need mobile banking services with a debit card. You need direct deposit. You need ACH. You need all that great stuff. And wouldn't it be cool if the basic model was free? That is lvl.co, level.co, guyswan.com slash level to learn more. With that, let's waste no more time. We are in read 495 of Bitcoin Audible, and it is titled An Economic Analysis of Ethereum by Lynn Alden. The anonymous founder of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, solved the hard problems associated with digital scarcity with a white paper in 2008 and launched Bitcoin in 2009. After that invention, numerous other projects came in its wake. There are now over 8,000 separate digital assets that CoinMarketCap recognizes. Of these, Ethereum is the second largest digital asset in the world by market capitalization after Bitcoin, and it enables a big ecosystem of other tokens on top of it. This gives it the only other major network effect in the space. A number of people have asked for my view on Ethereum and why I don't personally invest in it at this time, even though I do invest in Bitcoin. The short answer is that although I'm bullish on a number of utility protocol use cases, I am more cautious about betting on the long-term price appreciation of the utility protocol tokens themselves, since there is not necessarily a correlation between the size of the overall ecosystem and token appreciation of any particular protocol. So here is my analysis of the Ethereum protocol from an investor rather than developer perspective. 
It was originally published on January 17, 2021, and after feedback from the Ethereum developer community, including its founder, I finalized this slightly revised version a week later on January 25, 2021, with additional clarifications and details. Ethereum 1.0 Overview Ethereum was proposed by Vitalik Buterin in 2013, crowdfunded in 2014, and went live in 2015. Buterin, who was about 19 at the time, wanted to create a platform for decentralized applications. As he jokingly describes, the large game maker Blizzard nerfed his game character, setting off a multi-year search for a technological solution to rectify these sorts of terrible injustices. Quote, I happily played World of Warcraft during 2007 to 2010, but one day Blizzard removed the damage component from my beloved Warlock's Siphon Life spell. I cried myself to sleep, and on that day I realized what horrors centralized services can bring. Vitalik Buterin He describes finding Bitcoin in 2011, and from there, a fire was lit. Bitcoin uses a blockchain as a savings and payments technology, and the base layer is elegantly simple. It focuses on doing one thing exceptionally well, storing and settling value. Additional layers can be built on top of this base layer, harnessing its ability to store and transmit value for more complex purposes. An example would be the Lightning Network, which extends Bitcoin's scalability for small payments. Ethereum, on the other hand, is an attempt by Buterin and other developers to apply blockchain technology to a much broader scale right within the base layer of the protocol. It has marketed itself as a, quote, world computer, like an app store that is not controlled by any central entity. It's like a distributed operating system with a built-in token system, and programmers can use that ecosystem to make decentralized applications, or dApps for short, that often use their own tokens as well. The underlying technology for Ethereum is based on smart contracts, referring to programmed agreements in the blockchain that trigger when certain events occur. It requires fractions of Ethereum tokens to pay for a smart contract to be executed by miners on the blockchain. Example Applications Ethereum has been used to create a variety of projects. DAP Radar is one site among several that lets you explore decentralized apps across categories for Ethereum and other smart contract protocols. DeFi Pulse lets you track decentralized apps specifically for decentralized finance. One of the most popular examples is stablecoins. An institution can collect fiat currency, store it as collateral, and launch tokens that run on Ethereum's protocol. These tokens are ostensibly backed up one-to-one -one and redeemable for fiat currency, and as such tend to hold a stable price. These are basically dollars that make use of blockchain technology to transmit and store the tokens. People rely on a third party in the sense that they have to trust that the custody and collateral backing up the tokens are solid, but the exchanging of the tokens between counterparties is permissionless. There are creations that make decentralized stablecoins as well, such as MakerDAI. A set of applications called DeFi, for Decentralized Finance, became very popular in 2019 and 2020. 
These apps replicate various banking features, including ways to earn yield or borrow funds or exchange tokens. An example is Uniswap, a decentralized digital token exchange. Rather than a company serving as the central exchange hub, this is an exchange that runs in a decentralized way based on blockchain software and incentive mechanisms. Several other DeFi exchanges exist as well. Many other protocols exist for providing liquidity to these exchanges, often referred to as yield farming. People can deposit tokens and collect interest, and other people can borrow tokens and pay interest in a decentralized manner. Because there aren't manual or human credit checks or risk analysis for most of this, these systems often rely on a policy of over-collateralization to secure loans. Gaming and gambling are also significant areas of interest. A big early example was CryptoKitties. The game lets users purchase, collect, breed, and sell virtual cats. Each token represents a cat and each is unique. Once generated, users own their cat tokens and nobody can take their cat token away from them or alter it, like Blizzard did to Buterin's beloved Warlock. This application was popular enough to slow down Ethereum's network in late 2017. Nowadays, there are a number of crypto-based games. I'm not as much of a gamer as I used to be, but if I were, I could certainly see why blockchains can potentially add something of value to the gaming ecosystem. The idea of having items, pets, or characters that the user can hold independently of the game publisher, and maybe even have those items, pets, or characters recognized by other games as well, certainly is cool. Noteworthy, however, is the fact that many crypto-based games run on competitors to Ethereum, like EOS or Tron. Broadly, non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, are an area of demand and recent interest. Unlike a liquid and standardized unit, like a Bitcoin or an Ethereum token, a non-fungible token is a unique collectible, such as a unique digital kitty or more broadly, a piece of digital art, even tickets, or a domain name that can be traded on a blockchain. Lastly, social networks and other systems are also projects that exist in the DAP ecosystem. In theory, the sky is the limit, but the question is whether or not they make enough economic sense. Are decentralized apps really decentralized? One of my concerns when reviewing the biggest use cases for decentralized apps is that a lot of the use case is circular and speculative. Ethereum is heavily used for decentralized exchanges of crypto tokens. Crypto stablecoins that serve as liquid units of account for trading crypto tokens and lending and earning interest on crypto tokens, which is a practice that serves as a liquidity and borrowing source for traders of crypto tokens. To a lesser extent, it is also used for gamified ways to earn or trade various crypto tokens. So it's a big operating system powered by crypto tokens for the purpose of moving around crypto tokens. A healthy banking system in the real world would consist of people depositing money and the banks making various loans for mortgages and for business financing to generate real world utility. A speculation-based banking system, on the other hand, would consist of a bunch of banks taking deposit money and then lending to speculators in the nearby stock market, along with technology providers that make this easier. And then what those speculators are trading mostly consists of shares of those banks, 
shares of those tech companies and shares of the stock exchange, resulting in a big circular speculative party. The biggest use case so far for Ethereum is a decentralized version of that circular speculation-based system. There are games that are fun and collectible on their own, but in large part, Ethereum is currently mainly about decentralized finance and speculative trading. In fact, it can be argued that the main reason why some of these decentralized finance apps, like exchanges and yield farming techniques, have become popular compared to their more centralized competitors is that they get around Know Your Customer or KYC regulations. Governments try to enforce KYC checkpoints on regulated exchanges and custodians so that they can track who is buying and who is selling crypto tokens. They can do analytics on the public blockchains, but in order for them to enforce tax fraud or other lawsuits, they want to be able to link blockchain transactions to specific individuals by having KYC gateways on the exit and entry points as much as possible. Decentralized apps make that a bit harder and are, of course, more appealing for users who wish to retain their privacy. Increases in government surveillance in recent decades have been a key catalyst for the development of privacy technology or off-the-grid transactions. There's a common saying that if cash were invented today, it would be illegal since it's hard for the government to track and they wouldn't like it. If centralized crypto exchanges and centralized crypto banks are bound by KYC rules, and decentralized crypto exchanges and decentralized crypto banks are not, then of course we should expect some growth in the non-KYC decentralized versions, unless or until there is some regulatory crackdown on them. It is more expensive to run lines of code on Ethereum than on, say, Amazon Web Services. There are some games or services that make specific use of blockchain technology, like enforcing digital ownership of non-fungible tokens, example, representing a unique digital cat or piece of digital art. But other than that, many of them are replicating services, like crypto exchanges or lenders, that work similarly well without using a blockchain. So a lot of the growth seems to get around KYC to become somewhat, quote, permissionless. The problem, however, is that the ecosystem isn't yet as decentralized as it was envisioned to be, and has a lot of attack surfaces in the event of a regulatory crackdown. Third-party Ethereum node operators Bitcoin has been designed to make running a full node take up relatively little space. In fact, that was at the heart of some of Bitcoin's infamous fork wars in 2017, and the easy-to-run node core version of Bitcoin has so far won out over its hard forks that increased the block size and made it harder to run a full node in exchange for higher network throughput. This works well for Bitcoin because on the base layer, it focuses on doing one simple thing very well. Storing and transmitting value. It's an elegantly simple blockchain by design. Ethereum, being more complex and with more goals on the base layer, has a more complicated node situation, and dApps would become significantly harder to use if people didn't have access to third-party node providers. Since at least 2018, folks have been pointing out that the Ethereum dApp ecosystem has been rather reliant on third-party, large-scale node operators like Infura. 
Here's an article from back in December 2018, for example. That situation is still going strong. And ironically, Infura uses Amazon Web Services. So there are two layers of centralization. Here's how Infura describes their offering. Why should I use Infura? There are many pain points for blockchain developers that can be solved by Infura. Here are a few examples. Blockchain applications need connections to peer-to-peer -peer networks, which can require long initialization times. It can take hours or days to sync a node with the Ethereum blockchain and can use more bandwidth and storage than you had planned. It can get expensive to store the full Ethereum blockchain and these costs will scale as you add more nodes to expand your infrastructure. As your infrastructure becomes more complex, you may need full-time site reliability engineers and DevOps team to help you maintain it. Infura solves all of these problems by providing infrastructure and tools that make it quick, easy, and cost-effective for developers to connect Ethereum and IPFS and start building awesome decentralized applications. No syncing required, no complex setups, just your decentralized app, live and functioning right now. And here's how Alchemy, another third-party node operator, describes their offering. Data correctness. Web 2.0 infrastructure uses multiple servers managed by a load balancer. This fails with blockchain because each node has different blocks, transactions, and logs. This inevitably causes errors that crash apps and ruin user experience. Alchemy Supernode ensures data is always correct, real-time, and in sync, thanks to a proprietary coordinator service. Peak Reliability Apps that run directly on nodes suffer high latency and downtime because nodes are general purpose and not designed to be highly available. Alchemy Supernode powers each piece of node functionality with a dedicated distributed system, the same systems used by Facebook and Amazon for achieving massive scale. And infinite scalability. Don't worry about maintaining your own infrastructure. The challenges are so complex at scale and spinning up more nodes just increases data errors leading to crashes that cost you sleep and users. Alchemy's Supernode scales quickly and seamlessly so you can spend more time shipping products and delighting users. Apps that run on Ethereum are more decentralized than normal apps on other platforms, but if a large portion of what they are doing is getting around KYC regulations and the government decides to crack down on these practices, then they have pretty big centralized attack surfaces to go after. Governments could disallow cloud providers from hosting Ethereum nodes, and they could go after these companies that offer large-scale node services. They can't necessarily bring down Ethereum itself, but they can make dApps harder to use and therefore threaten the use case of the protocol. If there were to be some government crackdown on third-party node services for Ethereum, there would be a scramble among users to find ways to efficiently access their dApps without those centralized third parties. In an August 2020 episode of his podcast, Peter McCormick asked Vitalik Buterin the question, how reliant is Ethereum on Infura? Buterin answered, how reliant is Ethereum on Infura? 
So I think first of all, the Ethereum network is not reliant on Infura. Like if 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 Infura died tomorrow, you know, the Ethereum network would uh, keep going, and everyone who does have either an Ethereum full node or an Ethereum light node um, would still continue a kind of functioning normally. Ethereum applications would definitely get significantly harder to use, though at the same time, like it is possible to use um, Ethereum applications without relying on Infura, right? Like I think in MetaMask, it's possible to uh, kind of switch the endpoint to a local node. Um, and there is such a thing as an Ethereum light client, like you can run Geth Lite, and uh, some of the other implementations have light modes too, which also do the same kind of, uh, you know, block header verification that Bitcoin does. And actually, like in Ethereum, we even tried really hard to make light clients more powerful. So like, for example, Ethereum has this concept called a state tree, where instead of just committing to transactions, we commit to account balances. And so given a block, again, given the header of a block, given this kind of small piece of data uh, that's at the, at the top of a block, you can create a very short proof that cryptographically proves that, you know, what is the balance of a, a particular account, right? And these are definitely things that we can try to do better. And there's very active efforts at uh, trying to do better at this. Like there's a, a lot of ongoing efforts at, you know, trying to create a yeah, more decentralized uh, backend for you kind know, of something like MetaMask, for example. But like, if you want to, you could definitely hook it up to kind of your, 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 your full node or even your light node. During an October 2020 follow-up in the pro-Ethereum channel Bankless, Buterin gave further context on this issue. And there's different levels of validation that you can have, right? So like in a sharding context, for example, you're not going to be literally checking every single thing yourself, but there's techniques like, uh, you know, data availability validation, uh, for example, where you can probabilistically validate correctness. Um, you can validate the beacon chain shard. Um, you can be checking fraud proofs. You can run a stateless client. You can even run a light client, um, which is a better than, uh, you know, trusting subserver. Uh, and... It, it definitely is, I think, healthier for the ecosystem the more people do those things. Uh, and it's healthier for the ecosystem the more we do to uh, make it easy for people to do those things. Like I, for example, am definitely unhappy with the fact that, you know, MetaMask, uh, for example, is just a uh, client that directly talks to Infura or whatever. I mean, I recognize uh, kind of the reality is that there isn't really much of a, of a better way right now, but this is... Uh, absolutely something that we should be trying to kind of engineer our way past and uh, there's a lot of good great projects that are trying to engineer their way past it I and mean, even if uh, two for example is designed to have a much uh, simpler and a better light client than ETH uh, one does so we hope that things like metamask and things like status uh, can uh, end up uh, adopting it over time in november 2020 the market saw some of this risk play out in real time as infura went down Many exchanges had to temporarily stop allowing withdrawals of Ethereum tokens and the various tokens that are built on Ethereum. Infura linked the issue to a bug within one of the Ethereum clients. Quote, Earlier today, November 11, 2020, Infura experienced its most severe service interruption in our four years of operation. We realize that we are an important piece of infrastructure for many amazing projects and products. I'd like to apologize to all of our users and to the ecosystem. We recognize the faith that you place in us, and we don't ever take that lightly. I'd like to share the details of the incident with you so that there is more transparency in what occurred, and so that you can feel confident that our service will be better and even more resilient going forward. Security Concerns There have been a lot of high-profile DeFi hacks and bugs in 2020. 
This is different than an exchange or custody provider being hacked, like say someone stealing coins from an exchange, without the underlying protocol having any issues. Instead, many of these DeFi hacks and bugs had shortcomings in their underlying protocols exploited, resulting in loss of funds by users. It's a more fundamental issue at the protocol layer of tokens that Ethereum enables, in other words. When multiple protocols are involved in a complex way, hacks and bugs can happen more easily. A developmental solution to an unclear problem. To summarize here, there is substantial demand for stablecoins to use as a liquid unit of account when trading crypto tokens and other purposes, substantial demand for decentralized crypto token exchanges and decentralized crypto token liquidity providers, and some demand for token-based gaming and social dApps. Ethereum has a big market share of financial dApps, while some of their smaller competitors have sizable market share of gaming and social dApps. These dApps are less efficient than centralized apps, as measured in terms of cost per line of code execution. But because people want to go around KYC regulations and because stablecoins are very useful at the current time within the crypto trading space, there's plenty of demand. The Ethereum solution to serve this demand, however, ironically, has centralized clusters. While it's a significant step towards decentralization, it's not really the level of decentralization that some were hoping for, and Buterin has admitted as such. It's far more decentralized and permissionless on the user side, but these clusters of centralization serve as potential attack surfaces for governments to crack down on these methods of going around KYC-regulated and fully centralized firms. There are security issues in various tokens that Ethereum is used for, and most of the ecosystem is rather circular. Rather than Ethereum dApps providing a broad array of successful services to non-crypto industries, its primary use case so far is as a platform for trading, lending, borrowing, leveraging, and moving various crypto tokens. This sort of circular speculation can drive development and prices up very quickly but can also unravel quickly if things turn the other way. Ethereum Competition Ethereum faces competition from smaller utility protocols such as Cardano, Polkadot, Tron, and others. Much like how other monetary tokens have not been able to take market share from Bitcoin's expansive network effect, these smart contract protocols are much, much smaller than Ethereum. All of them together are smaller than Ethereum's market capitalization. So Ethereum has achieved a network effect and some degree of escape velocity compared to them. However, their gap to Ethereum is not quite as big as some of the monetary tokens are compared to Bitcoin, so they are worth watching. Similarly, there are some smart contract platforms that tie themselves to Bitcoin. RSK was an early example. Stacks 2.0 launched last week as another example and is a protocol built on top of Bitcoin that can bring smart contracts and DeFi to Bitcoin's network, using Bitcoin as the settlement layer. The project is well-financed from an actual SEC-regulated multi-million dollar capital raise, and they also issue grants for dApp developers to potentially kickstart a network effect. It remains to be seen whether any particular projects will be successful or not, but the point is, Ethereum has some competition at a time when it is undergoing transformation. 
In the second half of 2020, Ethereum's ecosystem encountered high fees due to so much DeFi and stablecoin usage. That's a healthy thing at first, since Ethereum is being heavily used and its network effect is vibrant. However, the fees caused problems for small transactions and made them non-economical. It's fine to pay $10 to transfer $10,000 worth of tokens, but not fine to pay $10 to move $200 worth of tokens. And so, as Coindesk reported, for example, lately more Tether transactions are occurring on Tron than on Ethereum. More Tether value was still settled on Ethereum than Tron during this period since the larger transactions still took place there. But many of the smaller transactions spilled over onto competing protocols since the rising transaction fees were making them uneconomic on Ethereum. This happened years ago with Bitcoin and Ethereum. Tether used to be run via the Bitcoin and Omni protocol, but increasingly switched to Ethereum. Now it's showing an ongoing tendency to switch to cheaper chains as needed. This highlights the relatively low switching costs of these utility protocols. Stablecoin entities and their users often create their tokens on multiple protocols and can use whichever ones serve their purposes the best. Ethereum 2.0, the next iteration. Ethereum.org describes some of the problems with their current protocol. Quote, High demand is driving up transaction fees that make Ethereum expensive for the average user. The disk space needed to run an Ethereum client is growing at a fast rate. And the underlying proof-of-work consensus algorithm that keeps Ethereum secure and decentralized has a big environmental impact. End quote. To solve some of these issues associated with the Ethereum network, the core developers, including Buterin, have been working for years on Ethereum 2.0, which will make huge changes to the protocol down to its core. Primarily, it will change from a proof-of-work security model to a proof-of-stake security model. In a proof-of-work model, which is what Bitcoin uses, miners dedicate processing power to solving puzzles, and when one is solved, it adds another block to the blockchain, which means a bunch of transactions get processed. The correct blockchain is whatever the longest chain of blocks is, as determined by the network majority. In a proof-of-stake model, transactions are validated not by contributing processing power, but instead by proving they own units of the cryptocurrency, and whichever chain is validated by more holders of the currency wins. If a proof-of-work blockchain has a split, meaning that there is a dispute about which block is the latest, a miner can only work on one of them at a time, and the longest blockchain ends up getting accepted by the majority. In a scenario where miners disagree about what the most recent block is, each miner has to choose which chain it thinks is correct and commit processing power to add more blocks to that chain. Inevitably, one chain will outpace the other based on which one the majority of miners contribute to and it will be the winner. The shorter chain will be discarded and any miner that contributed processing power to it has wasted their money. A proof-of-stake model uses less energy but is less proven technology in terms of security and decentralization. In fact, ongoing research into this space is part of what delayed Ethereum 2.0 from being finished for years. An inherent problem with a proof-of-stake model is that there is no cost for simultaneously verifying transactions on multiple chains. 
Rather than contributing to one chain, someone with a stake can verify all splits on the chain simultaneously with their tokens, since it doesn't require much processing power and thus has no cost for being wrong. They don't have to just pick one. So how are chain disputes resolved? There are various solutions to this, and that was part of the research and development in recent years. A number of different blockchains with proof-of-stake models have popped up. In general, the blockchain needs a way to be aware of splits and, quote, punish proof-of-stake validators for validating any chain that ends up not being the longest chain. This adds a cost for being wrong and gives an incentive to only validate what stakeholders really think is the correct chain, like a proof-of-work miner has to do. Ethereum 2.0 will have mechanisms to remove Ethereum tokens from validators that didn't do their job properly, which creates a big cost for being wrong or attacking the network. Ethereum's proof-of-work security spend is lower than Bitcoin's proof-of-work system, and more importantly uses GPUs rather than ASICs like Bitcoin uses. ASICs are specialized hardware with physical supply limitations, much harder for an attacker to acquire the majority of. The attacker would likely need involvement from existing miners with existing hardware, and it can't be repurposed for other activities, whereas GPUs are general purpose and abundant. Theoretically, someone could buy a ton of cloud GPU power for a brief period of time and try to do a 51% attack on Ethereum 1.0. And this attempt would be much cheaper than trying to do a 51% attack on Bitcoin without specialized hardware or supply chain limitations. So I can see why Ethereum's developers are interested in proof-of-stake instead, due to their low hash rate and GPU-based mining. Assuming it works as intended with no hidden attack surfaces that were not accounted for, proof-of-stake should make Ethereum more costly to attack than it currently is. However, with any new security model, it takes years to prove that it's attack-resistant in practice. The more complex something is, the more surprises there can be. Ethereum 2.0 Rollout The Ethereum developers have been working on the Ethereum 2.0 update for years, have experienced multiple delays, and are intending to complete it by 2022. It may end up being delayed beyond that. I don't blame them. It's extremely complex. First, a, quote, beacon chain was released that runs in parallel to the existing Ethereum blockchain. This was done in December 2020. This allows for staking, meaning that Ethereum holders can commit an amount of Ethereum tokens to operate a validator, which will validate transactions. Anyone with 32 Ethereum tokens can operate a validator, and those with smaller holdings can contribute to a validator pool instead. This is the core proof-of-stake model. Second, up to 64 shards will be created. Rather than being one chain, there will be dozens of parallel chains called shards that process transactions on Ethereum 2.0 and connect with the beacon chain. This will radically increase the transaction throughput of the system. Each validator will only operate on one shard at a time, verifying transactions that are taking place on that particular shard. Sharding potentially opens up security issues, because for example, if validators can choose which shard to operate on, it wouldn't take much money to do a 51% attack 
on one particular shard. And so the beacon chain has to coordinate validators somewhat randomly to prevent this possibility. Third, once all of this is running, the current Ethereum 1.0 chain will be docked into one of the shards. At that point, Ethereum 2.0 is born and could be considered out of alpha development and in beta development for further refining as it operates. And then, at some stage of no major changes for a while, it can be considered to be out of beta development. In addition, there are rollups and other sidechain solutions, which are somewhat similar in terms of the end goal to how the Bitcoin network uses Liquid and Lightning as secondary layers to enhance its throughput. And with these developments, there are questions as to whether sharding is even necessary, which gets back to the point of the base layer itself being in development. Ben Eddington's recent article for The Block, for example, outlines how the roadmap is shifting. Quote, A year ago, Ethereum 2.0 had a neat and tidy linear roadmap. Phase 0, the beacon chain, was to be followed by Phase 1, sharding for scalability, which was to be followed by Phase 2, abstract execution engines, and finally, ETH1 would be merged into ETH2 on top of its superstructure. Then the Phase 2 design began to look like it would take longer than expected. And at the same time, pressure started growing to get ETH1 merged into ETH2 as early as possible. So we inserted a phase 1.5, in which a lift and shift of ETH1 into an ETH2 shard could be performed directly. Alongside that, a whole new scaling paradigm emerged that doesn't rely on sharding at all. This is rollups. And in October this year, Vitalik proposed a new rollup-centric Ethereum roadmap as the route to scalability. Rollups are a so-called Layer 2 technology that take much of the burden of computation and storage out of the blockchain and use the chain just enough to benefit from its security guarantees. They come in different forms, ZK rollups and optimistic rollups with different trade-offs, and the technology is nascent. But it is looking very likely that rollups could provide much of the scalability Ethereum needs, even before Ethereum 2.0 is fully delivered. Also in the mix are stateless Ethereum, although rollups might relieve some of the pressure of Ethereum's state bloat, and promising new cryptographic techniques like Kate commitments that suggest exciting new directions. With all this going on, our nice, neat three-phase roadmap has now morphed into the spider's web from Vitalik's recent update. Can we weave all these threads into a coherent tapestry? I believe that if any community can make this work, it's the Ethereum community. End quote. What will Ethereum look like in a few years? It's hard to say. Investors that strongly believe in the project could be rewarded significantly if all the pieces fall into line properly in the years ahead. But there is also significant risk and lack of clarity as technical paths and overall architectural proposals change right on the base layer. Kind of like a bet on a startup company management team, a bet on Ethereum is a bet that the developers will perform a massive transformation on the base layer and successfully maintain its dominant network effect against competitors. Ethereum Monetary Policy Alright, let's take a quick break right here because this is getting into a new section um, and it's one that I think is very important. So let's hit our sponsor real quick and we will jump back in at Ethereum's monetary policy. And today's wonderful sponsor is none other than Level.co. 
L-V-L. We don't need none of those silly vowels. It's just a waste of time. It's not the Bitcoin bank you deserve. It's the Bitcoin bank you need. You don't deserve to have no trading fees, but you'll get it with Level. That's right. It is a free exchange and full mobile banking that you, you can even get checks for your account like you're cool and it's 1985. You got direct deposit, wires, uh, a hosted Bitcoin wallet, a debit card, and that's all in the free version, right? So for just $9 a month, you get a world debit card, you get a personal banker to help you with questions and concerns, automatic trading, and even more. Level is available in 28 non-North Carolinian states, but plan on being available to everyone except the unfortunate state of New York by the end of 2021. If you wanted to live off of Bitcoin, this is the service you've been waiting for. Check them out at guyswan.com level. Ethereum Monetary Policy One of the criticisms that Bitcoiners have towards Ethereum is that its monetary policy has changed multiple times within its shorter lifespan, while Bitcoin's has yet to change. Bitcoin generates a new block on average every 10 minutes, and every time this happens, a certain number of new coins are created. For the first 210,000 blocks, it was 50 new coins per block. For the next 210,000 blocks, it was 25 per block. Then it was 12.5 per block, and currently it is 6.25 per block. Every 210,000 blocks, the issuance rate gets cut in half, and over time, its issuance will asymptotically approach zero. Bitcoin investors can tell you with a rather high degree of precision how many Bitcoins there will be in, say, August 2026. Bitcoin will not exceed 21 million coins or alter this exponentially decreasing issuance rate unless a majority of the decentralized network agrees to, which is very unlikely unless there is some security issue in the future that forces them to change their issuance model. Here's an article that covers a number of topics related to long-term Bitcoin security. There is no central development team that can easily change Bitcoin's monetary policy, and in 12 years of history, it has not been changed. In contrast, Ethereum has a more flexible monetary policy changed by key developers over time and accepted by the network whenever needed. It was launched with 72 million pre-mined coins from the start, unlike Bitcoin which had no pre-mine, and currently has about 115 million in total supply. This chart shows the total supply in blue on the left axis and shows the annual supply inflation rate in orange on the right axis. The annual issuance rate with all those annotations kind of looks like it was drawn by a Bitcoiner making fun of Ethereum, but instead that's from an Ethereum source. Various Ethereum improvement protocols or EIPs by developers have changed its monetary policy over time as needed for various reasons. However, alongside this transformation process to Ethereum 2.0, Ethereum seems to change its monetary policy again with an update called EIP-1559. This should substantially reduce new token issuance. Within this EIP-1559 framework, Ethereum will have both a deflationary element and an inflationary element that together will determine how many Ethereum tokens there are at any given time. 
The deflationary element of EIP-1559 is that the base fees that users pay for validators to verify transactions will be destroyed rather than given to the validators. Users can provide an extra tip fee to validators to incentivize getting certain transactions through the queue quicker, but the base fee will be destroyed each time. Since these fees are exclusively paid in fractions of Ethereum tokens, this permanently removes a small percentage of Ethereum tokens from the system every day. The higher the total fees are in the system, the more tokens that will be destroyed per day. The inflationary element of EIP-1559 is that validators will receive newly generated Ethereum tokens from the network for validating transactions in perpetuity. The total rate of issuance will depend on how many Ether tokens are being used as validators, with higher yields if there are few validators, thus incentivizing more to boost security, and lower yields if there are many validators, which makes it less attractive to validate. The more validators there are on the network, the more tokens that will be generated, but the amount generated per validator will decrease, resulting in lower yields for validators. Validators have risks, as previously mentioned. Improper validation or being offline can result in some of their tokens being taken away. So, rewards of newly created Ethereum tokens incentivize them to tie up capital and take risk to generate more tokens for themselves and provide necessary transaction validation and security for the network. In theory, EIP-1559 is a rather elegant framework. It ensures an inflationary security budget for validators while also having a deflationary element in the form of fees. Many Bitcoiners would disapprove of the fact that there's no hard issuance rate or hard cap for Ethereum tokens on EIP-1559. I actually don't have a fundamental problem with EIP-1559. I think it's a much better monetary policy than Ethereum has been operating with so far and is well thought out. As long as the monetary policy is rules-based, and results in relatively low issuance, I think that can work for what Ethereum is trying to accomplish with this protocol. As an oil-like enabler of dApps rather than as a gold-like scarce collateral. Indeed, the highest potential rate of issuance in the proposed EIP-1559 system is quite low, and some potential outcomes are deflationary on net. If there is high transaction throughput relative to the number of validators choosing to operate on the network. However, my question is that given how many times Ethereum's monetary policy has changed already, why would I assume the IP1559 will be permanent? Ethereum developers change their monetary policy as often as the Federal Reserve does, and for similar reasons, to try to optimize aspects of the ecosystem's economy. If EIP-1559 is in place for a number of years, proves itself to work as intended and doesn't change, and Ethereum 2.0 is operating smoothly, I'll have a reasonable confidence that it won't change anymore and that the system is working as intended. Until then, all I can do is watch and see how things turn out, unless I feel like making a speculation based on my assessment of the developer team and the competitive environment. Node Characteristics Let's take a look at node characteristics. A node refers to client software that a user can run to verify the blockchain and help enforce consensus rules. I'll start with Bitcoin for reference again and then compare and contrast Ethereum to it. 
Even after 12 years of consistent operation, the entire Bitcoin blockchain is less than 350 gigabytes and is growing rather slowly at a pre-programmed limit. Bandwidth requirements to run a full node are only about 500 megabytes per day, which is super low. By being small and not growing faster than memory grows for a typical computer over time, and with only a basic internet connection required, a full Bitcoin node that stores and validates the entire blockchain can be run on a laptop or similar device, and that will be true for the foreseeable future. This makes Bitcoin highly decentralized in terms of validation and consensus. Although mining capacity is centered in certain countries like China, a big source of Bitcoin's decentralization rests with its consensus framework among full nodes. Each full node can reconstruct the entire Bitcoin blockchain, and they are operated around the world. Here is a map of ones that are visible to the network. Here we just have a graphic from bitnodes.io. Ethereum currently has various levels of nodes. Despite the Ethereum blockchain being far younger than the Bitcoin blockchain, the amount of space required to run a full node for the Ethereum blockchain is already larger than a Bitcoin full node, since it grows more rapidly per unit of time. Given a sufficient length of time, it can become harder and harder for a regular user to operate one, which means full nodes could be limited to large entities rather than accessible to any user. Plus, there is something called an archive node in Ethereum that is more complete since it includes various intermediate states. A full node can unfold and turn into an archive node, but it takes many days and many terabytes of space. So they tend to be run only by larger specialist entities. Ethereum 2.0 will change this. In order to greatly increase the transaction throughput of the system, validators will only be verifying transactions on a specific shard out of potentially 64 shards. So they are only storing data for and paying attention to a small subset of the network. However, there will also be super full nodes that store the full data of the entire Ethereum 2.0 network. These will require massive storage and bandwidth, and will only be operable by a handful of large entities. Ethereum Wiki provides an overview of the types of nodes that will exist in Ethereum 2.0. Quote, Note that there are now several levels of nodes that can exist in such a system. Superfull node downloads the full data of the beacon chain and every shard block referenced in the beacon chain. Top level node processes the beacon chain blocks only, including the headers and signatures of the shard blocks, but does not download all the data of the shard blocks. Single shard node acts as a top level node, but also fully downloads and verifies every collation on some specific shard that it cares about. Light node downloads and verifies the block headers of main chain blocks only does not provide any collation headers or transactions unless it needs to read some specific entry in the state of some specific shard, in which case it downloads the Merkle branch to the most recent collation header for that shard, and from there, downloads the Merkle proof of the desired value in the state. End quote. 
This is a difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum 2.0. The Bitcoin community emphasizes self-verification as a key principle. Any normal user can download the open source Bitcoin Core software on a basic laptop and the entire Bitcoin blockchain. This allows them to audit the entire money supply of Bitcoin, see every transaction in all of Bitcoin history, and verify for themselves that the consensus rules are being followed across the network. With Ethereum 2.0, a regular user won't be able to do that. They will need to trust other network participants, including these super full nodes run by large entities, and rely on a probability assessment that the protocol is working as intended. They will only have direct verification access to the network with a single shard node or beacon-only node or light node at a given time, unless they can invest into major computer or network infrastructure to run a super full node, which will be outside of the capacity of most users. Again, to their credit, a ton of thought was put into this design. Ethereum developers wanted to avoid some of the issues of altcoins that try to increase throughput by making every node hard to run, so they wanted to make a spectrum of nodes to give users different levels of validation, which is about as good as can be done when this much complexity is being built into the base layer of the protocol. A price model for tokens. The Ethereum 1.0 blockchain is rather congested now, so transaction fees are pretty high for what the protocol is trying to accomplish. This can be beneficial for Ethereum price. You need Ethereum tokens to pay for smart contracts to execute, and high fees mean you need more tokens to pay for that execution. In the long run, that's bad for the network though, because if dApps are way more expensive than their centralized app counterparts, then their reason for existence is less compelling and competing utility protocols can take market share. The main purpose of Ethereum 2.0 is to dramatically expand throughput of the system, literally by orders of magnitude. While this is necessary for the protocol to become a quote, world computer as it is attempting to do, it opens up questions about the incentive structure for Ethereum token pricing. If transaction throughput is super high and fees are pretty low, users don't need much Ethereum tokens to run dApps. There's this interesting trade-off. High fees make dApps less attractive and provide room for competitors to take market share, while low fees potentially decrease the demand for Ethereum tokens. However, running validators is a good incentive for Ethereum investors to hold the tokens for the long term on Ethereum 2.0. They can hoard tokens and take them to validation to earn a yield of more tokens. So, for as long as the system remains functional, there will likely be plenty of people that want to hold the tokens and earn yield on them. In addition, Ethereum tokens can be used for collateral in DeFi borrowing. These functions serve as a liquidity sink for Ethereum tokens in the ecosystem, and is part of Ethereum's attempt to be both a utility commodity and a monetary asset. In theory, if Ethereum 2.0 dApp usage grows substantially over time, and the protocol retains significant market share against competitors, Ethereum tokens should appreciate in price to some extent as well, benefiting from these liquidity sinks, collateralization, and Metcalf's law. 
By what degree, however, is hard to say. Since a high-throughput, low-fee system doesn't directly necessitate a high Ethereum token price, between late 2017 and late 2020, for example, the amount of USD value settled on the Ethereum network nearly tripled and even outpaced Bitcoin, largely due to high-frequency stablecoin trading and DeFi, while Ethereum's USD market cap merely retested its previous highs. This phenomenon was predicted by John Pfeffer back in late 2017. Link provided. Once again, an assessment here will depend on the investor's view of the Ethereum development team and their ability to transform the base layer of their protocol while maintaining a lead over competition. Being a utility token does not preclude Ethereum from also being a monetary token if sufficient investor demand for Ethereum tokens exists for staking and collateral. At the same time, ecosystem growth for a utility protocol does not necessitate token appreciation. Unlike with Bitcoin as a primary store of value, where adoption and token appreciation mostly go hand in hand. To the downside, if Ethereum 2.0 dApp usage flattens out and stagnates, see the aforementioned problem of being rather circular at the moment, along with some competition, then the token value would also likely stagnate. So, with Ethereum, investors have to be correct about two outcomes. First, you need to be correct about Ethereum retaining most of the smart contract market share for the long run, even as it undergoes a transformation. Second, you need to be correct that in addition to its utility functions, staking and collateral will be enough to permanently monetize Ethereum tokens themselves, rather than them serving primarily as fuel for the network. Bitcoin versus Ethereum There is a heated, ongoing debate between some Bitcoiners and Ethereans, which yes, does sound like a Star Trek episode. First of all, there's a cultural divide. Bitcoin attracts more of a libertarian and Austrian economist group, big fans of sound money, self-sovereignty, etc. Also, plenty of Silicon Valley financiers, so a bit of a mix there. Bitcoin enthusiasts like being able to run a full node on their personal computer and audit the entire money supply and consensus rules of the Bitcoin blockchain. Don't trust, verify. Development in the space is slower but more stable because preserving the core Bitcoin protocol is of utmost importance. Institutions are starting to get interested in Bitcoin with big pools of capital. The surrounding ecosystem is very security-focused, including multi-signature solutions and Bitcoin-only hardware wallets that take security a step further than other wallets. The protocol and surrounding ecosystem are hardened, battle-tested, and stable. Ethereum attracts more experimentation. As a platform, it enables plenty of speculation in small altcoins that have a high failure rate, but also constantly reassesses developments in the technical landscape to see how to improve its foundational framework. It's more ambitious on the base layer, which some see as a feature and others see as a bug. It's more centrally reliant on its founder and more trusting in terms of money supply and details. 
DeFi on Ethereum has been able to catch on faster than Bitcoin's secondary layers, but DeFi's growth is inherently based on speculation so far. Some Bitcoiners view any other cryptocurrency or digital asset as inherently a bad idea or a scam. New uses of blockchain technology, many of them insist, should be built on Bitcoin's proven foundation, rather than in parallel to it as a separate protocol. The Bitcoin developer community tends to move slowly and cautiously, rather than adopting the approach of moving fast and breaking things, which they perceive many other tokens as doing. Ethereans, on the other hand, see a lot of value in the Ethereum network. And indeed, that is the one other blockchain that has built some degree of network effect over time besides Bitcoin. And it's also benefiting from Metcalf's law. Some of them view Bitcoin as old technology, or limited to being digital gold, and believe Ethereum is where a lot of the action will be going forward. Many of them see a role for Bitcoin as a savings technology and store of value but are simply more interested in Ethereum's potential for decentralized apps. Buterin coined the term, quote, Bitcoin maximalist, to refer to Bitcoiners that believe no other coin besides Bitcoin will retain significant value in the long term. Bitcoiners, in contrast, often point out that most folks who go into the rabbit hole of crypto trading various altcoins end up losing money in the inevitable down cycle, and that many of these protocols just ride on the coattails of Bitcoin to enrich their founders at the expense of unsuspecting traders, without adding long-lasting value or understanding what exactly made Bitcoin successful for 12 years so far. Overall, the track record for digital assets other than Bitcoin is pretty bad. Out of thousands of tokens, many have been outright scams, Many lack sufficient security and get hacked at the base layer, not just through an exchange, but the actual protocol itself receives a 51% direct attack or bug exploit. And others are well-intentioned and interesting, but simply not successful. The vast majority have not surpassed their late 2017 highs in terms of price or hash rate, whereas Bitcoin has. However. I do think some digital assets, such as utility protocols, are useful and are here to stay. The questions are how many, which ones, and at what market capitalization. Ethereum has so far been the second, quote, blue chip in the digital asset ecosystem, remaining a large force through more than one cycle. The Hardest Money I don't consider myself to have much of a stake in this debate. I'm an investor and want to invest in things that I consider to be stable projects and that have good risk-reward characteristics. For me, at this time, that includes Bitcoin, but does not include Ethereum. I prefer the risk-reward opportunity in Bitcoin for the digital asset portion of my portfolio, based on reasons I described in my July 2020 article. It has 12 years of price history and consistent monetary policy built around difficulty adjustments that occur every two weeks and supply halvings that occur every four years, which so far has algorithmically driven the price and adoption up. Bitcoin's base layer has been out of effective beta mode and in full operation for a long time. The ecosystem around it continues to improve, 
and the base layer gets security updates over time, but it's a working system as it currently is. There have been no major changes on the base layer since 2017, and it has operated with the same overall framework since inception in 2009. The bigger changes in the Bitcoin space are mostly happening on secondary layers and in the surrounding software, hardware, and finance ecosystem. Ethereum, on the other hand, is a work in progress on its base layer, still in alpha development, since it's still changing core underlying mechanics despite being in operation. Many of the aspects for Ethereum 2.0's design are clever, and it's clear that a lot of thought has been put into it, but there's plenty of speculation about what demand for it will be, how well it will function, and how securely it will maintain itself. They're changing many things about the protocol that made it successful in terms of price for the first five years of its life, in an attempt to address current limitations that threaten the functionality of the network. Some macro investors like to do a split of 90% Bitcoin and 10% Ethereum, or 80% Bitcoin and 20% Ethereum for the digital asset portion of their portfolio. Do I think that's crazy? Not really. People should do what they think is right for them, what they assess to have a good risk and reward opportunity, etc. Study the top protocols and determine for yourself what you think is likely to be successful. Some people would see value in buying some Ethereum tokens, stashing them away somewhere and seeing what happens in five years as a rather asymmetric speculation. If Ethereum breaks over $1,400 to new highs, it has the potential for a major gain next year. Indeed, as long as the network is congested and fees are high, it helps Ethereum tokens appreciate in price. However, investors should understand that Bitcoin is still in alpha development. Maybe in another five years when Ethereum 2.0 is in place and functioning for a while, with consistent monetary policy for that whole time, it can be considered largely a finished project like Bitcoin. Until then, it's experimental. Bitcoin has a significant amount of volatility and upside potential as it is, so most investors do not need to take the speculative risk of venturing into protocols that are still doing fundamental development on their base layer. Value accrual tends to concentrate in the hardest form of money in terms of scarcity, security, divisibility, and fungibility, which is why gold has been foundational for most of human history in the area of finance. Things that can be used to perform work, like copper or oil, are not typically where the market stores long-term value. That analogy doesn't apply perfectly to Ethereum, since Ethereum has a high stock-to-flow ratio. But from an investor perspective, the burden of proof is on any secondary network that tries to optimize for many things in terms of its attempt to rival the top network at the main thing that it does, store value. This is not without precedent, however. Silver, for example, has a history of being used for both utility and money, existing in the intermediate state between gold and copper or oil. The extent to which the Ethereum ecosystem can enable a host of applications is a somewhat separate question from how much its tokens will appreciate for the long term in terms of price, apart from the natural boom-bust cycles that it goes through. The complexity of Ethereum 2.0's proposed base layer, with a beacon chain and dozens of shard chains, may be less appealing for large pools of capital to buy and hold tokens of, 
compared to the relative simplicity and complete verifiability of Bitcoin's base layer. The Concord Risk In my view, the biggest risk for Ethereum is that it could end up like the Concord. The Concord was an airplane, first flown in 1969, that would let the public fly at up to two times the speed of sound. While it was functional and operated commercially for over 25 years in a limited sense, it never became an economically sustainable project. As I write this in 2021, over 50 years later, the public still has no supersonic commercial flight options. People in the 1960s thought we'd be in space by now or with flying cars like the Jetsons, rather than traveling in planes that are slower than the fastest commercial plane of 1969. It's extremely challenging to design and operate an aircraft that can safely and repeatedly surpass the speed of sound. Lots of aerodynamics change at that point where the sound barrier is breached. In five decades since its conception, the problem has still never been solved in an economic way for commercial flight. So, while the Concorde was really cool, could go from New York to London in three hours, and stuck around for a while, it never could quite work in terms of solving a big enough customer problem at an appropriate price compared to alternatives. The market eventually settled for first-class flyers paying higher fees to make a long flight more comfortable, rather than money going towards shortening the time of the flight. Ethereum has a ton of smart contract developers working on it, and it's exploring some neat avenues. It pushes Bitcoin developers to continue to innovate in the ecosystem around the base layer, which I like to see. But I have lower conviction that Ethereum will be successful in the long run compared to Bitcoin in part because of the rise of other utility protocol competitors. I'll continue to monitor the situation as things change and new facts and developments come in. Maybe Ethereum will iterate and find a long-term sustainable place for itself in Ethereum 2.0. On the other hand, Ethereum could end up being weighed down by its own complexity and lack of broad economic use, like the Concord while later generation utility protocols catch up. Final Thoughts I think monitoring Ethereum and other utility protocols is important for a variety of different investors. Stock investors should probably pay attention to some of the dApp development to see if anything out of that ecosystem could disrupt some of their traditional investments over time. Bitcoin investors should monitor it as a partial competitor and partial collaborator to see what works, what doesn't, and more importantly, why. It can inform the development of their own ecosystem. Stablecoins are particularly important in my view. I'm bullish on the amount of money locked up in stablecoins. It's a space to watch for both good developments and bad developments. The U.S. Office of the Comptroller of the Currency now officially permits U.S. banks to use stablecoins. They're a much more liquid form of fiat currency and can have various implications for central bank digital currencies and the existing global monetary system. While I don't think having a small position in Ethereum is crazy, I also don't have a clear way to model it other than speculation, since it's an unfinished product on the base layer with a rather circular use case so far 
that revolves around the trading, leveraging, liquidity provision, and gamification of altcoins. With Bitcoin, I can present a more fundamental-based argument in favor of a non-zero position as a macro asset. 80-20, or 90-10, or 100-0 in terms of BTC and ETH ratio all make sense to me as the digital asset portion of an investment portfolio. My approach is closer to 100 and 0 in favor of Bitcoin, and I haven't seen a compelling reason to change that, other than if I just feel like speculating on the long-term success of the developers. I'd personally need to see Ethereum 2.0 out of alpha development, with consistent monetary policy and with more usage in areas outside of token speculation, for it to grab my interest in a more structural way. Some people in the digital asset community refer to Bitcoin as gold and Ethereum as oil. One is a store of value and the other is an enabler of work, in other words. However, I see Bitcoin as having a tendency to surprise to the upside and persist from cycle to cycle in a way that most other cryptocurrencies don't. Ethereum might be the second largest blockchain network that stays around for a long time from cycle to cycle in a functional form, consistently benefiting from Metcalfe's law, but it has to get past this 2.0 transformation. From an engineering perspective, I prefer Bitcoin's modular design. The base layer is simple and stable, designed to be nearly bulletproof. On top of that layer, the ecosystem can innovate, while it may not move as fast as some people prefer, it moves in the direction that the market wants. That's also how the existing financial system works. There are underlying settlement layers and then faster payment layers built on top of those base layers. So far, the market in the Bitcoin ecosystem has wanted security to maximize the store of value proposition. So it has received a level of multi-signature solutions and hardware wallets that exceed the ecosystems of other digital tokens, including Ethereum. The market has been less interested in Bitcoin's secondary layers as a medium of exchange since there hasn't been a lot of necessity yet, although Lightning Labs and other developers continue to build tools and infrastructure for when demand increases, which eventually higher fees on the base layer will likely cause. And many app developers are already using these tools. As an analogy, Martial arts all have different philosophies. Some strike first and are more prone to offense. Others emphasize a strong foundation, patiently absorb or deflect initial attacks, and then respond harder and use their opponent's momentum against them. Bitcoin, in my assessment, is the latter. It doesn't move fast and break things, as per the Silicon Valley saying, like many altcoins do. But it moves slowly and has a tendency to get things right. The more ideas and innovations that pop up in the broader digital asset industry, the more Bitcoin developers have to work with for their protocol and ecosystem. I'll continue to monitor the industry, but at this time, I prefer an exclusive Bitcoin investment for the bulk of my digital asset portion of my portfolio. I can see why some people like to speculate with Ethereum as well, since it can have higher percentage gains during bull runs. Those speculators should understand that the base layer is still in alpha development with rapid change in terms of its security model, monetary policy, and addressable market at a time when competition in the smart contract industry is not insignificant.
And that concludes an economic analysis of Ethereum. And I cannot resist. I know that if I delay it, I won't, I probably won't wrap back around to it. So we're going to do a guy's take on this, even though this is going to make this episode like an hour and 40 minutes. Um, but uh, uh, I got to, I got to break down some of this. And I love this piece. Lynn Alden is, her newsletter is just fascinating. Um, I will have links to all this stuff so you can check it out uh, really quick. Let's hit our other sponsor and we will come back to Guy's take on this piece. The Bitbox O2 hardware wallet is Bitcoin ownership. Too many people make the mistake of thinking that because they bought Bitcoin on an exchange or other service and they show them a balance that they own that Bitcoin, but not really. It's an IOU. The only way you know you own Bitcoin is by holding your own keys. Only then do you know your account can't be frozen like on Robinhood, or that your funds can't be stolen by a bail-in like in Cyprus, or that you can't move it unless it's a business day or have some other arbitrary withdrawal limit like at the bank. When it's on your Bitbox, it's yours, and no one can do anything to change that. You know, Obama said that using Bitcoin is like having a Swiss bank account in your pocket. Using the Bitbox is like having a Swiss bank vault in your pocket. It's secure, open source, actually Swiss made, and easy to use. The best way to hold the world's most secure digital asset is in a secure digital vault, the Bitbox O2. Check them out at guyswan.com bitbox. So as I've said before, like what I really like about um, uh, Lynn Alden's perspective on this is uh, she's, there's no skin in the game here, right? Like, excuse me, skin in the game is not the word. Um, there's no, uh, there's no bias. Like she's just coming at this from a, a flat investor perspective and she's a brilliant investor and she understands the macro trends and the currency environment breaks down the financial system so incredibly incredibly well um the petrodollar piece that she does uh really like not only did she like understand and you know properly uh i guess uh break down or re-explain some of the like more fundamental elements and understanding of the petrodollar system which have been written about from a lot of different perspectives but there were actually a lot of really really well thought out unique insights I felt like she gave and about how the petrodollar system has over the long term started to work against the U.S. Uh, the U.S. economy even though you know it seemed to be such a huge benefit to have the world reserve currency the the illusion that you can just print and pay for whatever you want um, and uh, like I really really hi I highly recommend that piece if you haven't listened to it yet it's the um, the fraying of the petrodollar system, I believe, is the, the title of the piece. But it's really, really good. Um, uh, but yeah, so on that perspective, like hearing her breakdown of Ethereum, I thought just is she inevitably has a really great perspective on it because it's not she's not a Bitcoin maximalist. She's not an ETH head. She's like she's just looking at this like from a macro perspective what are the important problems to be solved what's the value proposition of these digital assets is there something in, in utility tokens does it make sense to hold multiple positions and uh, funny enough she comes to the same conclusion 
um, that I do, though I have kind of a Bitcoin maximalist perspective on this thing. Um, and there are a couple of various reasons as to why. She hits most of the main uh, elements, but I think a few of them are far more fundamental uh, and really important to uh, the issue here um, that she rightfully recognizes, but you know, maybe just from my perspective, I stress way, way more as to how crucially important the abandonment of certain principles or design philosophy in Ethereum, how unbelievably ill-advised or um, uh, just a bad idea that I think it is. But as I've said over and over and over again, the, the number one thing wrong with all of these altcoins and shitcoins and Ethereum and all of these things is the fact that they think they have to have a native token. The token is what will kill them. They can have the best technology ever. They can have a really fascinating, you know, fee structure and, you know, distributed, uh, you know, IPFS sort of uh, server storage or whatever it is. And I think the economics of trying to have a free-floating token that attempts to work with money within its closed system and require that you only use that money or give you some sort of stupid discount with that money is what will end up killing all of these systems. And the technology will just migrate to a better foundation. Um, the economics, I think the economics of a utility uh, token do not make sense. And that's throwing aside... That this will dismiss all of the proof of stake problems and the the absolute insanity, I think, of the Ethereum 2.0 model and shift for the the system. I mean, it, it's basically not Ethereum. Um, but we'll ignore that for just a minute. And I just want to talk about the idea of utility tokens. Utility tokens, trying to put a token into some um, attempt at a federated uh, server setup or social media thing, whatever the hell it is, utility tokens are just barriers to the technology being adopted or the, the very technology being built. If the point of the system is to make some convoluted way to trade uh, providing a service for some fee, well then the massive inefficiency of creating a free-floating token and then exchanging that token to use the platform and then trying to wrap it up into a blockchain, this does nothing but make that system unusable and impossible to do long-term economic calculations. And if you notice and look at so many of these apps, and like Lynn says in this piece, and DeFi is such a good example, is that it's almost all circular. They aren't using the apps for what, the, or dApps, whatever you want to call them, for what the dApps are intended for. They're using it to speculate on the tokens themselves, which means people are speculating on the tokens without using the tokens for their intended purpose under the presumption that they might increase in value in the future if used for their intended purpose. And then it makes perfect sense 
that a staking and liquidity token ecosystem would evolve here because it's people locking up tokens to get more of those tokens in hope of the price going up and then people on the other side of that borrowing the tokens to buy more tokens, which drives up the price. It's not a lending market for productive use or real-world capital. You're not going to get a useful macro interest rate for the price of you know starting a business or something in this market. You're getting a you're getting a borrowing uh, a borrowing price for a token speculation in a short-term time window. This is not about real value. This is about a circular, self-fulfilling speculation and gambling system. And even worse, it's built on a shaky foundation that has no idea what it even is. You know, a token ecosystem where every application has its own unique money is no more efficient than a barter system. Think about it. The point of money is so that you don't have to barter between the prices of every individual thing you're going to trade. It, we're talking about requiring huge, for, for this to actually catch on, for this to actually be a fundamental way that the market operates, you have to have liquid markets and exchange rates between every token and application you're going to use. That we have to have an exchange rate between chicken tokens and debt tokens and storage tokens and social media tokens and that the trading pairs have to be liquid enough so that there's no slippage so that people can actually make an economic calculation with something like this over the long term and every storage token is going to need liquid exchange rates with the record keeping tokens and we don't want people to share too much information or god forbid a, a video go viral because it might cause a spike in the social media tokens and make the market lopsided blah 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 and all the while people are losing value and actual economic calculation for productive valuable use cases it's almost impossible. This isn't a robust, sound money, thoughtful, long-term economy. It's a disaster of a fast, digitized, global barter structure that's convoluted and pointless. It's like trying to have a set exchange rate between chickens and shoes. The efficiency of money and the very structure of the division of labor, which makes the economic whole incalculably more productive is because we have a common monetary medium. Them trying to create their own token for their single use case is exactly like trying to create, recreate a barter system in a digital atmosphere. And thinking that it solves the problem of barter because we can now do it faster and we can automate it with computers. I genuinely think Ethereum is a combination of the the Silicon Valley venture capitalist, build it now, ship whatever you've got, who cares about security or long-term robustness sort of mentality. And the over-financialized, screw austerity, leverage it again for greater returns, rehypothecate because nobody's going to care or check, the, check our work, debt mentality of the financial system. Both of these are wrapped up into a spider's web of confusing mess. Yes, there may be developer brilliance in here. Yes, they might be building really clever tools and smart contracts, but it is the exact opposite of a security mindset that will actually fix the many internet's fundamental structure problems, and it's the exact opposite of the philosophy that will actually fix the awful politicization and fundamental problems of our financial system. That doesn't mean it won't stick around for a while, as I expect both, both of those net negative philosophies to have a long time to unravel. But nonetheless, neither one is a solution. 
They are our problems. And just another fundamental thing is that because you have some sort of a utility token on top of your on top of your network, the value does not accrue to the network. Uh, and she goes into it in this piece. Lynn hits it perfectly well. It was first Tether was on Bitcoin and it was on uh, Mastercoin and they rebranded as Omni and then it moved to Ethereum. Now it's moving to Tron. Like they just they just hop. It has nothing to do. Um, and John Pfeffer, apparently, in the in that uh, crypto assets piece, which I don't even think I even finished. I did. I followed the link that she um, a link to in the thing, um, and I might I might try to read it at some point again. Um, but uh, apparently, he called that this was going to happen. That the Ethereum was going to start, um, you know, uh, moving a lot, a ton more value than it was in 2017 and earlier. But then none of the value would actually accrue to the Ethereum token. And that makes perfect sense, right? You know, like that's like saying that, um, you know, your server is going to be more valuable because you got a really great website on top of it. It's like, well, no, you just move it to a new server. Um, and, you know, we talked about this at length on this show um, uh, on Shelling Points, Network Effects and Lindy by uh, Willem Vandenberg. Uh, just lays out that argument beautifully um, about how it is only the token that has the network effect. It is strictly like all of these systems, and this is something that most people just do not grasp. These systems can and will be built on top of Bitcoin if they uh, provide any useful, like actual productive real world economic value, whatever. They will. And there's no limitation. You don't have to, You not only do you, not have to build it at the base layer. You don't want to build it at the base layer. It's horrible for security. It's a horrible, horrible foundation for a global decentralized foundation, a, a financial system. You don't want holes in that. You don't want large attack surfaces for that. That's the exact opposite of the de design philosophy. And like just going into the example of Ethereum 2.0, that's what they're doing. They're basically creating some consolidate a bunch of side chains to one super chain system and sacrificing the security and consensus of their entire protocol in order to do this. I mean, think about what a shift Ethereum 2.0 is. You can't even call it the same system like at all. If you can call Litecoin different than Bitcoin, Ethereum 2.0 has nothing to do with Ethereum 1.0. Everything about this is untested and fundamentally breaking the entire security model of Ethereum. And I mean all of it, not like some of it. It might as well be like a smush together of a bunch of random altcoins instead of having something to do with Ethereum. Everything meaningful and secure about it as a monetary good, which is the only thing it had going for it, um, is essentially out the window. And proof of stake, just in general, like has so many problems. One thing that is hardly ever addressed is addressed is that the the idea of staking, particularly since they claim there's going to be a really low issuance rate, that shit's never going to hold. Never going to hold because proof of stake, staking your coins, locks them up uh, to prevent them from being used for some other purpose. If somebody else is just take DeFi for example, shit, if you can get two percent. Um, uh, for uh, buying some token or staking some token or whatever instead of 
uh, staking it or staking it for DeFi so that somebody can borrow it and buy some token that people are gambling on. And you can make 2% doing that and the Ethereum staking is only 1%. Nobody's going to stake Ethereum. The security of the Ethereum protocol is going to be out the window because you found something that you could uh, make a slightly better return uh, on Ethereum. It's entirely dependent on the actual potential alternative uses that pay any sort of return. So if you have a low uh, percent return, um, and this is, this is without taking into the huge problem of the Ethereum token going up or down in value, but if you've got a low return um, for uh, staking Ethereum and there's anything else that has even slightly higher return, I mean, shit, just like imagine it became money. Imagine you just staked it for... Um, you put it up for a business um, endeavor or you put it up for uh, a payment protocol or Raiden or like the their second layer protocol that now they're trying to do a lightning network and side chains too on top of the sharding and the 64 pieces of Ethereum and the, the light chain and the beacon chain and the blah, blah. Imagine somebody wants to use these tokens for any other purpose. Well, now they're not securing the Ethereum network. Now, now, what does it take to attack the network uh, from staking? You don't have that problem with proof of work. You don't have that problem with an ASIC miner. You can't do anything else with it. It is used for securing the Bitcoin chain. The fact that it has no alternative use case that is profitable is a critical factor for why it's secure. An investment in Bitcoin security is a long-term investment, period. It reinforces stability. It reinforces security every time a new dollar or a new sat is allocated toward that hardware and that infrastructure. None of that is true for proof of stake. None of that is true for Ethereum. The one thing it's got going for it is the fact that it's got a robust, pretty successful hash rate market for GPU hashing, which itself is less secure than Bitcoin because. You can GPU, you can do other things with those GPUs. ASICs, I still think, are far better from a security standpoint um, and from a, uh, a, from a long-term sustainability standpoint. You could attack, you know, you can just go to the super, some supercomputers with, you know, GPU-style processors and attack Ethereum, uh, whereas you can't do that. Um, the, the return for, you know, taking a supercomputer or whatever and attacking Bitcoin is hundreds or thousands of the efficiency and actual hash rate that you would get from ASICs, uh, which means that you have to invest in the Bitcoin ecosystem. You have to use Bitcoin hardware and Bitcoin companies and Bitcoin infrastructure to attack Bitcoin, which makes it that much more secure. So that way already Ethereum is, uh, is inferior, but it's still one of the best thing Ethereum has going uh, going for it right now. It's actually pretty well distributed from a GPU security standpoint. It's got a really good hash rate, so it would still be expensive and difficult to attack Ethereum. And they're gonna throw all that shit out the window. And even after going to proof of stake, they're gonna they're gonna add complexity to it. It it God, it just reminds me of all the all like a bunch of the altcoins early on that thought they were going to fix the Bitcoin proof of work problem. Um, and vulnerability by using five different algorithms that did 20% of the Bitcoin or 20% of the altcoin hash rate together. And now they're, now they're uh, uh, ASIC proof 
Now they're really secure because you need GPUs and you need ASICs and you need this, blah, blah, blah. But then the protocol, the mechanism to decide what was 20% of each and which one was actually dominant made them more vulnerable. Um, we actually saw this on multiple different networks because there were exploits where you could trick the protocol into thinking there was more share or, or essentially the, the illusion of less hash rate in certain one of the five algorithms or one of the three, whichever network they were specifically on, and that that was too low. And then they would reallocate, they would trick the protocol into thinking this one needed to be amped up like 10x in order for it to be equal with the others. And now suddenly, rather than needing a 51% of the hash rate to uh, actually attack the network, they only need 11%. It actually made it easier to attack a less secure network because they were trying to create some confusing, more convoluted security system, which put them, it, all it did was increase their tax, attack surface and make it easier to exploit the many different dynamics between the security and uh, the protocol elements and the difficulty adjustment and then the difficulty between the hashing algorithms. The more layers you add to this thing, the more complex it gets, the more ways you can kill it, the more ways the thing can just be overrun or cheated. And we saw exactly this happen with examples just like this of networks getting fully dominated or crippled by thinking they had more secure systems and uh, thinking that they were going to gain security by adding complexity. And then we saw proof of stake. We've seen proof of stake fail. Uh, Steam and their social network, another great example. The founder of Steam had 65 million tokens and these things were supposed to be locked up so that they're only gonna be used for development. Well, lo and behold, the founder of Steam decides they're going to move on to other things. What do you know? An exit scam? Oh my God, unheard of. So they sold the like Steam. I can't. I can't remember exactly what it's like. The Steam Foundation or the Developer Fund. Blah blah blah. The sixty-five million tokens to Justin Sun of Tron, out of fear because these aren't. These are supposed to be developer tokens. This is supposed to make their system secure and long term and decentralized suddenly oh crap i just realized that if that one developer if the founder uh decides to do something different with it all of our plans are out the window we completely missed there's this giant centralized point of attack here and so out of fear the community tried to soft fork so that he could not use those steam to vote in the proof of stake system they were because they were supposed to you be used to develop and sustain the the steam so, steam it social network whatever it was what did sun do what's john what did justin sun do oh well what do you know he found a majority vote uh, vote to proof of stake undo the soft fork and screw all of the average the average users who were trying to use this thing because guess what it's not decentralized when you have a handful of people um who can just stake and dominate the network, and consensus is based on their stake, and it gives them no long-term cost. All they have to do is have the largest stake, and who has the largest stake? The founders in all of these systems, because they gave themselves pre-mines. They just handed out coins at the beginning, so that they always have a dominant stake in the network. When you make these things proof of stake, which Ethereum has the exact same problem, there's only 115 million tokens, and they pre-mined 72 million of them.
You think that's going to be decentralized when the ones that they handed out to their friends and founders are just the ones that decide what consensus is in the network? So Justin Sun attacked Steam, uh, did a hostile stakeover, and how, how, did, how did he do this? Everybody just leaves their crypto crap on exchanges. There was a vast majority of all the Steam tokens were just in like Binance and Poloniex. So Justin Sun just calls up his CEO buddies and they just, they just completely did a hostile takeover of the entire Steam system. They reversed the soft fork, uh, unlocked the development coins for Justin so that he could just do whatever he wanted. Shocker. And uh, their decentralized, quote-unquote, blockchain turned out to just be run by him and a couple of exchanges. That's proof of stake in action. That is proof of stake in the face of a malicious actor, of an adversary. And this is going to be fixed by breaking it up into 66 shards and having a beacon chain and super full nodes and archival nodes and second, third level nodes and nobody can verify anything unless you have a freaking AWS plant. You think Ethereum is going to be immune to this? And that the monetary policy is going to be secure in the long term? The second, the second there is any sort of a contentious change in the monetary policy, those super full nodes are going to do whatever they want. I guarantee it. If this ever gets implemented. I don't think it will. But if it did, the monetary policy is already heavily politicized. There's no way that as soon as it becomes any sort of a threat, as soon as DeFi is taking all the staking coins away from Ethereum security, or um, that any sort of decent interest financial instrument is you know, taking away staking uh, a capital and the return on staking is too low because they're burning all the fees and they want minimum viable inflation rate or minimum viable issuance or whatever the heck they call it which just means that nobody knows that it's not objectively decided there's nothing set in stone and we're just going to politicize it and we'll just change it as we see fit um which is exactly what the political system has right now that is exactly all of the problems with money is that they are decided by a small group of humans who think they're going to manage and run the economy better than natural economic incentives. Couldn't be a better example for the de-hawk quote, that uh, simple, clear purpose and principles give rise to complex and intelligent behavior, and complex rules and regulations give rise to simple and stupid behavior. I guess I'll let you decide whether complex rules and regulations is something that describes a minimum viable issuance based on some subjective group's determination that can't be predetermined, that changes as often as the Federal Reserve's, as Lynn Alden's point out, points out, um, with a beacon chain and super full nodes and 64 separate shards where almost no one can actually validate anything, um, uh, Certainly not the entire thing with circular token printing and borrowing that has not a single rule anywhere that's actually predictable over even the next year. I'll let you decide if that sounds like a stable foundation for a, 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 found, a financial system that solves uh, our current problems. And this is what just eats at me. This is what eats at me about Ethereum. Um, like I, don't, I, I really don't care. Um, about the tech. I'm sure there's some great things being built, but 
that is not, that's not our problem. Like, our problem right now, the, the people in Ethereum don't care about the monetary aspects. We have a $100 trillion problem in the world, and it is only solvable. It is caused by the lack of and is only solvable by robust, global, sound money. The lack of it is the source of so many of our problems. And the fact that we actually can build it again and we can actually re-implement it is the solution. And Ethereans don't even care that you can't know anything about the freaking monetary policy. That alone, in my opinion, is reason enough to not care about it. Now, if I'm wrong about the economics of utility tokens and all of this crap, I don't really care as long as we solve the problem of sound money. Like, I could really give a shit if we end up with 100 tokens versus one token, and, you know, Bitcoin is just one of 100. I just really don't care. The problem is what I want solved. What I want is the rehypothecation and the inability to audit and the horrible corruption and debt-fueled slavery that comes with a fiat system. I want that problem solved, and I just don't see how Ethereum is anywhere even close to a solution to it. If it does get solved with 100 tokens, if, if privacy does get re-implemented by everybody having their own freaking money, I, I just don't care. I don't care. The reason I am Bitcoin only is because it is the only thing I see that even has a ghost of a chance of solving these problems. If it turns out that a hundred of them together will solve it, cool, I'm all for it. But you're gonna have to prove to me that you even care about solving that problem and that there is anything in it that actually gets us there. If all it does is print tokens so that you can borrow and stake to get more tokens, to buy more tokens so that your token prices go up, then I'm not interested. I'm not interested. It's not solving a problem. It's just gambling. And sure, it's cool to do that without KYC. Great. Go to town. I don't really care. But there are way more important things for me to spend my time on. And Bitcoin, thank God, is solving those problems. I had, I had notes for this and I did, I'm not even following them. Um, <laughs> uh, where, where do we got here? Oh, dude, the, the quote from Lynn Alden just cracked me up. Um, I had to re-record that line because I giggled. Uh, Ethereum developers change their monetary policy as often as the Federal Reserve does and for similar reasons to try to optimize aspects of the ecosystem's economy. Um, and she talks about EIP-1559. Um, says, if it's in place for a number of years, proves itself to work as intended and doesn't change, Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0 is operating smoothly. I'll have reasonable confidence that, it, confidence that it won't change anymore and that the system is working as intended. Until then, all I can do is watch and see how things turn out. Unless I feel like making a speculation based on my assessment of the developer team and the competitive environment. End quote. So this is where I think it makes absolutely no sense to think. I, I just can't see how EIP-1559 even comes close to being sustainable. Um, uh, because uh, if there is any illusion that security is falling or, or going away or that there is any detriment to Ethereum at all, it'll get changed. It'll get changed immediately. 
um, because they're already in the process. They're already in the mindset of kick the can down the road and change it whenever, whenever anything's going the wrong way. I mean, this was their solution to scaling, to throw everything about the consensus and security model out the window. You think the monetary policy isn't going to be up for debate? And that when this thing is broken into 64 shards and beacon chains and super full nodes, that anybody in, like any users are going to be able to prevent a change in the monetary policy? No. None of that's going to matter. Even now, even now, a fully archival node, and I, she, I don't think she, she quite makes the distinction clear. I don't like that they refer to their full nodes. Um... That they refer to what is essentially a light node, a pruned node, as a full node, because they do not audit the entire Ethereum chain. They don't. Being able to recreate the data and put it back together later is not downloading and verifying it. Because you can make it, you can recreate it and then verify it has absolutely no bearing. And the fact that some miner hashed it does not make it secure. We know this. Anybody who has looked at this for any length of time, that doesn't make it secure because a miner hashed it. The miner might not be doing any checking either. We've even seen that happen on the Bitcoin blockchain. How? Because blocks get orphaned when they break the rules. If you're hiding stuff behind some larger state change, like from some settling system, and you're not able to validate everything that goes on. You just don't know. You don't know. You are trusting someone else to do the validation for you, which means you're just trusting somebody else's computer. You're just back in the, in the cloud, quote unquote, which the cloud is just a fancy word for storing it on somebody else's computer instead of your own. You're just doing that with money, with the monetary system, in fact, with the foundation of it. And I don't care how great the DeFi protocol is when it's built on like two major Ethereum service providers. You can't, God, Maxwell talked about this so great. Um, it's so many great analogies in explaining this in, um, during the block size wars is that you can't build something more decentralized on top of a centralized system. If you think you can get around KYC because you've made your DAP and put it on Infura or, um, crap, I already forgot the name of the other one. And you're using stable coins and all these other quote unquote decentralized tokens to stake and all of this stuff. But Ethereum can be controlled. None of that shit's going to survive anything. If there's any, any sort of a government crackdown, which there will be. There simply is going to be. The assumption that that won't come is basically a nail in the coffin. It means that it's not going to survive because it will come. If Infura and Alchemy, Alchemy, that was the other one, Alchemy get uh, sought out by governments, all of DeFi disappears. If Tether and the wrapped BTC custodians get sought out and cracked down on by government, it's over. Like it's, it's done. It's completely dependent on a couple of stable coins and like a couple of service providers that run all of this stuff. That's not government resistant. That's not decentralized. 
And it doesn't matter how many nodes you have for your ERC token that's running on top of the smart contract for the, for the uh, exchange system that's running on Infura if you can just call up Infura. But if you have a strong base, if you have a simple, highly decentralized, everyone can validate base layer, you can build anything you want on top of it. You can get back privacy on higher layers. You can, you can maintain decentralization on higher layers, but you can never be more decentralized on higher layers than you can, you can be at the base layer. And even, like, even going back to like Ethereum 2.0, like the fact that they're going to have 64 shards and a beacon chain and all of this stuff, 64x the throughput isn't going to solve the scaling problem. This is the thing that I don't get. How could you see the scaling problem as so tiny, irrespective of the, the broader issue? They're still going to need lightning layers. They're still going to need Raiden and all of these things. They need to have things built on top of it still. They will still need side chains. They will still need payment channels and all of this crap. But you know what they've lost? The simplicity, the security, and the decentralization of the base layer, which means that now you could potentially break the foundation of Ethereum 2.0 and ruin every layer on top of it in the mix. Not only does your second layer run the risk of being less secure or running into problems, you run the, the risk of it all just being obliterated because the base layer you can't even validate. The base layer doesn't even have a tested uh, run in the wild and uh, tested against adversaries consensus model. Trusting that just seems insane to me. That, that system doesn't have a Lindy effect. Or at least if it did, it's certainly not going to as soon as Ethereum 2 rolls out. And they will still have the same problem that Bitcoin has. With none of the simplicity, none of the Lindy effect, none of the tested in the wild against adversaries uh, security and consensus model, with none of the validation, and they're still going to need layer two. They're still going to need layer three. If their scaling problem, excuse me, if their scaling solution isn't a 10,000x solution, it's meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless. I mean, it, ETH heads have been saying for years that Bitcoin couldn't work because it had too high fees. I mean, Vitalik, at Ethereum's early days, very early days, explicitly said, you can never have an internet of money with five cent fees. Bitcoin won't work. This is why we need Ethereum. Ethereum's fees are like 20 bucks. And Bitcoiners have been saying for ages that if anybody comes and uses the system, there is no way to make a blockchain not have high fees. It is limited by its nature, and its security model is, is, has limit, limitations as a requirement. It is an explicit trade-off between security and auditability, the trust in the system, with the throughput. And now suddenly, we're hearing that argument from Ethereans. Now suddenly, they re recognize that, oh, it's because everybody's using it that it has high fees. It's like, well, no shit. It's so what we've been saying for years. So sorry that it got rubbed in your faces when you turned out to be wrong again. This is, this is a bit of my tribalness here coming up. 
So, you know, it's a bit of a sore spot, but it just, it's so painful to see, to, to hear, to hear it thrown in my face over and over and over and over again, and then be right, and then have it thrown in my face again as if they're explaining something to me. Anyway, that's why, that's why I'm a big fan of Lynn Alden. She doesn't have any of this baggage, right? She hasn't had to deal, dealt with um, Ethereum for like, Ethereum arguments for like five years and desperately tried to explain, no, you're going to have high fees. No, no, if it gets used, um, it's going to have problems and uh, it's going to get bloated. And then basically be told on an infinite loop that that was never going to happen, then see it all happen. And then told that, you know, I'm a hypocrite for uh, thinking high Ethereum fees is bad when Bitcoin has fees. It's like, yeah, we've been explaining that for a really long time. It may be a slight sore spot with me. And then to cap it all off is that you're going to be able to do all of this with DLCs, with PTLCs, with the tools coming to Bitcoin, and it'll be built on a strong foundation and a solid, reliable, robust monetary token that, guess what? is perfectly 100% down to the 100 millionth of a unit verifiable by anyone with even a half-decent computer. In fact, I am spinning up an umbral node as we speak just because I wanted to test a new, uh, a new interface for it. So, I still got a lot of other notes about Ethereum 2.0, but I don't think I need to get into it. Oh, I'm just going to... I'm just going to rant. Uh, so uh, let's close this one out here. Uh, Lynn Alden did a great, great job. I mean, this was a, this was a really fair and well-thought-out economic, you know, a breakdown of the elements of Ethereum. And I think the one thing that she didn't, the one thing that she didn't notice and or I, I guess realize is that we won't even need these alternative systems for these smart contracts. Um, uh, it might be a little bit over people's heads, but I still love my chat with Nadav, Nadav Cohen um, from Shared Bits talking about DLCs um, and things like lightning pools, like decentralized exchanges and stuff are going to be perfectly possible and are um, perfectly possible on top of Bitcoin, even with the rather um, restrictive script that is built into Bitcoin. And the same thing in uh, a lightning network is PTLCs, the ability to hash to any data you possibly want. It's completely application agnostic and you can lock the transaction to that and remain, like continue to have a fail safe to exit if anything goes wrong. Um, so even in the case of like some problem with, you know, a smart contract or some decentralized exchange where things aren't lining up, uh, your, your failsafe is to do nothing and just get your coins back. Uh, so the underlying, the lack of systemic risk in building these things on top of Bitcoin, if Ethereum is building anything interesting, um, if any of these altcoins are building legitimate good code that can be distributed and built on top of an IPFS and run in a far more efficient way just by exchanging a small fee for the service into like an open market for um, buying and selling this service where there's no central coordinator. And guess what? It's going to work. It's going to work. Um, 
and uh, people are building it as we speak, and it will actually be built the right way. It will be done slowly, it will be done robustly and securely, um, and uh, it'll be way more efficient because you won't have to buy some arbitrary, pointless token uh, that loses 50% of its value over the term, over the period of time that you want to use the service. So that's my prediction. And I don't think it'll take, I think in 10 years, we won't really be talking about them. Honestly, if they actually switch to Ethereum 2.0, I would cut that down to five years. I think Ethereum 2.0 is going to be the worst thing that ever happened to Ethereum. But we'll see. We'll see. If we solve the problem in a way I fully do not anticipate and we get uh, private, global, sound money some other way, I'm fine with it. It's not, not gonna, I'm not going to be butthurt about it. I will, I will be happy that we succeeded and humbled that I was wrong. But I am pretty confident right now that Bitcoin is the only thing that's getting us there. So, um, yeah, with that, um, uh, much love to uh, our sponsors. We've got the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet um, for your cold storage Bitcoin savings. And uh, Level.co the mobile banking services uh, to integrate Bitcoin with your financial life. Check them both out at guyswan.com. That's swan with two N's. And of course, thank you. I've had a lot of new patrons lately. Uh, join the audio knots. Thank you guys so much. Uh, it's been really cool to see. And I cannot thank you enough. It, uh, it really goes a long way. And it also means a lot. It's great to have awesome sponsors. But um, it's also just cool to see a listener donate a dollar. So thank you all so much. I am Guy Swan. I will catch you all on tomorrow's episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, take it easy, guys. This has been a 111 production, and you were listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.